0: Ten lepers were healed, and in that time, they had to be separated from society because of their disease, but only one of these guys came back and brought glory to God, as the text says, brought glory to God by worshiping the Lord, by showing Jesus his gratitude. The other nine took it for granted that God had had answered their prayer, and they failed to give God praise, they failed to glorify God for the tremendous miracle, think of that, the miracle he did in their life, and they went about their business as usual, as if nothing had happened. It makes me wonder how many people view prayer this way. They pray because they know they're going to get something from God that's going to take care of their situation. And so they, they do that, and then when they get what they want, they go back to their business as usual until the next crisis takes place in their life. But think about this. Answered prayer is not the end of the matter. Answered prayer is never the end of everything. It must be followed up by thanksgiving to God for what he's done, by praise, by adoration, by exalting the Lord. In this way, we can glorify God if we'll do this. The opposite is also true. If we fail to be grateful for answered prayer, then we are not glorifying God in what we're doing. Now, our perspective on prayer often doesn't take that into account, does it? We don't think that way. But our desire should be that God is glorified. Prayer is about this. Prayer is that God is glorified from throughout the whole process, from beginning to end through the prayers, through the answered prayer, all of it. When Hannah prayed for her child and God gave her that child, she did not continue to go about business as usual. She stopped and she gave glory to God by this tremendous God-exalting prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, as we examine this prayer, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10, which apparently the Lord overrode on. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God tonight to some degree. He overrode on the passage I wanted to read because Philippians Chapter 1 got inserted instead. (laughs) so Apparently he wanted that passage read. But as we examine this prayer, we don't want to get overly analytical, too much so. We want to keep in mind this is a heartfelt prayer of of, uh, Hannah. It's from her heart, and she is clearly revealing her heart as she prays her feelings. But the more I thought about this prayer, the more I thought also how theologically rich it is. It's incredible as you read through this prayer to see how to see how Hannah thinks of God. Last week, we talked about asking in prayer. And it's very important that we ask God of the things that he's told us to ask for. That's part of prayer. It's a big part of prayer. God says to do that over and over again. And, and the Lord answered a prayer we saw last week of Hannah's. In chapter 2, there is no asking in prayer. Hannah's not taking prayer requests and, and asking God for things. This time, she is asking for nothing. Hannah is simply offering thanksgiving to God for his work in her life. So you see, both are true. Both petition and prayer and praise and prayer are, are necessary. Both must be must be done in order to please God. And so we give God praise because he's good to us. So Hannah has this God-exalting prayer in this chapter. Now we're going to observe through this prayer the high view that Hannah has of God and how she thinks of God and how she looks at the Lord. Not only that, though, it's a very poetic prayer. It's written in the form of a poem And as a result, it's often referred to as Hannah's Song. You may see that in your Bible. It's called Hannah's Song, maybe, some of your Bibles. It's a song of thanksgiving, a song of praise to God. Now, these prayer-slash-songs are usually recorded after some great event of deliverance takes place in the Old Testament, or maybe some gracious act of God, some intervention of God takes place. For example, there's a song of Moses in Exodus 15. After the Lord intervenes and, and delivers Uh, the children of Israel from Egypt. And then you have in Exodus 15, the Song of Moses celebrating the Lord's victory. And then there's the Song of Deborah. We saw that when we went through Judges chapter 5, Deborah the judge. After a victory is accomplished by God, the next chapter you see Deborah song there and celebrating the Lord's victory. Later on in 2 Samuel, you'll see David singing in chapter 22 about the Lord's victory over his enemies. So you have these songs, and Hannah's song, her prayer song, is similar to these. Uh, this song of praise is offered after, after she dedicated Samuel to the Lord in and, uh, and, 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 and regard to answer to her prayer. And you're going to see as we go through this prayer, this prayer is totally God-centered. The focus of this prayer is on the character and work of the Lord. First of all, in this prayer, Hannah rejoices in the Lord's salvation. She rejoices in the Lord's salvation. Verse 1 says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, as you read verse 1, you can sense the joy that is in Hannah's heart. She's doing what the Apostle Paul will later say to do in Philippians 4.4 4, when he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again And again, I say rejoice. She's joyful. She's rejoicing because... She has been delivered by the Lord from a particular circumstance. Now, this prayer starts off as very personal, as you can see in verse 1. You've got four personal pronouns used. She says, My heart, my horn, my mouth, I rejoice. It's not a formal praise or prayer, it's a very informal one, a very personal one for Hannah. She's letting her feelings be known to the Lord. You know, when we pray, we're not devoid of emotion. Um, we, should, we should let our feelings, our true feelings, be known to the Lord, at least in our private prayers. We should let the Lord know exactly how we feel. He wants us to do that. You, know, you, you read the Psalms and you see all these prayers of people when they're praying, uh, they're in tears, they're complaining, they're lamenting, they're joyful, uh, whatever the case may be. Emotions are all over the place in the Psalms and prayers Prayer is not something to do because, you know, it's, it's formal or artificial. It's something that's an expression of our heart to God. And so it's our heart's feelings toward God. Now, in the first recorded prayer of Hannah in chapter 1, she's a distressed. She's, in a, she's in a, a woman oppressed in spirit, she calls herself. She's in distress because she doesn't have a child, and her, her rival, uh, Penina, the other wife in the family, is making fun of her, mocking her because she, she doesn't have a child. And, that, and that's how she felt in the first prayer. She's burdened down with a distressful situation. But in this, in this second prayer, she's overflowing with joy. And you can see this in chapter 2. So We need to be real with God in our prayers is what I'm saying. We need to let the Lord know exactly how we feel. He knows what's going on in your heart, by the way. He's not fooled. You don't need to have come with stained glass you know, prayer before him. He knows what's going on, so be real with him. And Hannah is exalting the Lord. She's real with God. She's grateful for her son that God gave Samuel. She was barren for years. Now God's given her a son. She's grateful for that. But the focus here in this chapter is on the greatness of God. She is rejoicing in the Lord. Her heart is overflowing with the joy of the Lord. That's what this chapter is about. Or as she puts it, she says, my heart exalts in the Lord. Not only does her heart exalt in the Lord, but she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. You ever read that and you wonder, what in the world is she saying when she says my horn is exalted in the Lord? What does it mean? Well, the horn of animals, and that's what she's referring to, is used as as a means of attacking or defending itself. And she's referring to that horn there. The horn symbolizes strength. It symbolizes power and maybe victory over its, over its enemies that maybe it would get in a fight with. The picture of the horn here being exalted is that of an animal's head elevated after he's victorious in some kind of a fight. And so Hannah's horn is exalted in the Lord. She means that she's been vindicated before Penina, the the rival that provoked her. The Lord has reversed Hannah's situation in life. She's no longer barren. She's now victorious because she has this child, which back in those days was a big deal. And so she's experiencing this triumph, and this triumph is not... Of her own doing it is the Lord that her horn is exalted in the Lord it says right so it's the Lord that has caused her to be triumphant by giving her a son now Penina the other woman in chapter 1 who symbolizes uh, all enemies of the Lord in this chapter uh, is has nothing more to say she can no longer provoke Han- Hannah bitterly because Hannah has a child now what's she gonna say prior to this Hannah was anything by but triumphant but now because she's turned to the Lord, as we saw last week, she's experiencing the victory that God has given uh, her. Her disgrace has been removed. She's no longer barren. It was a big disgrace back in that time. She's no longer barren. She's victorious now. And so she holds her head up high. Now, this is not a pride thing so much as it is because God has given the victory. She's able to do this now. That's why. God has given her the victory. God has done something for her. And so she's, her horn is exalted in the Lord. Next of all, she says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Literally, it means my mouth is wide open against my enemies. It's wide open. You know, she never, she never complained, Hannah never did. She never complained about Penina. She never criticized her rival, Penina, never did any of that at all. She left her vindication in the hands of God. That's what she did. You know, the verse, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Leave your 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 people are attacking you. Leave that in the hands of God because God is the one who's going to get vengeance on them. Trust me, whatever vengeance you could deal out to someone is nothing compared to what God can deal out to someone in His wisdom. Leave it in the hands of God. But now her mouth is open wide against what because of what God has done for her because He has delivered her. She's been vindicated. Now, that doesn't mean she's vindictive. She's not vindictive. She's not trying to get revenge on her enemies. She never, she never tried to do that. I think she's just rejoicing in the victory that God gave over her enemies. And I think her enemies are also God's enemies. The same thing, as you can see throughout this prayer. She loves the Lord. You know, there's a great difference between the attitude of Penina and the attitude, if you've looked at chapter 1, and the attitude of Hannah. It's a great difference between both those attitudes. Penina vents her anger towards Hannah and criticizes her brutally. What does Hannah do? She runs to the Lord. She seeks the Lord in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2 again she's doing it. And that's how a believer should act when he's reviled. Isn't that how Christ acted when he was reviled? Peter says in verse 2.23, he says, While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering... By the way, didn't Hannah suffer for years at the hands of Penina? While suffering... It says in First Peter two twenty-three, Christ uttered no threats. He didn't threaten back and say, I'm gonna get you. He didn't do that. But what did he do? It says, But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to God. That's what that's how we respond to those who would attack us. We 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 that's who that's how we respond to those who would make our life miserable. We keep entrusting ourselves to God, right? not natural for us to do that, but that's what the Lord wants. So why does, her, why does she exalt in the Lord? Why does she say her heart horn is exalting the Lord? Why is her mouth speaking boldly against her enemies who are also the enemies of God, I believe? The reason is found at the end of verse one, it says, because I rejoice in your salvation. That's why I'm so joyful, Lord, she says, because I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation means deliverance. God has delivered her And deliverance comes in different ways in the Old Testament. It could be a deliverance from an enemy of of Israel. It could be be deliverance from a troubling situation in your life. It could be deliverance from sin. In all those ways and more, for Hannah, it was deliverance from barrenness. She was barren, childless, and she wanted deliverance, and God granted her deliverance. God is the ground of rejoicing for Hannah because he has delivered her from this barrenness. In this prayer, it's all about him. It's all about God. It's it's not about the blessing so much now, although she's thankful for the blessing of Samuel, but it's about the one who blesses people, right? It's not so much about the gift in this chapter as it is about the one who gives, and that's God. As James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. God's the one who gives good gifts. And, And Hannah knew that, and she was thankful for that. So the Lord has brought deliverance to Hannah, and the Lord has brought deliverance to you and I in many ways in our life, no doubt. Think back on your life, and you can think of all the times you've prayed and asked God to deliver you, help you in a given situation, and he's, he's done that. We know he's delivered us from the bondage of sin, right? If we know the Lord, if we have turned from our sin, if we have trusted in Christ, we know he's delivered us from the bondage of sin, yes. But in other, in other ways, he's answered our prayers and troubling circumstances we've presented to him. And he's and he's and he's helped us in those circumstances. Now, he never promised us a life free from pain. I'm not saying that. Everything is not going to be, you know, a rose garden for you in life. It's not going to be a bed of roses. Things going to be difficulties in life. But there's many times where the Lord has delivered us as we've prayed to Him. And what should our response to be when we're when we have our prayers answered? Should be we're rejoicing in the Lord at that point, that we're. Thankful for what God has given us, that we're in full recognition of the fact that the Lord is our deliverer, that he's our salvation. So the object of Hannah's delight is the Lord himself in this this prayer. But her prayer doesn't stop with the Lord's salvation. She's so full of joy. Uh, By the way, this song or prayer doubles as a a lesson in systematic theology as well. She goes on to praise the Lord's incomparability in verse 2. She praises the Lord's incomparability. It says in verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Those three parallel lines there that describe God's incomparability. Um, She says, first of all, and she's talking about the uniqueness of God, that there's no one like him. First of all, she says, there is no one holy like the Lord. Now, we live in a world full of sinners. And there's only one who's perfectly holy, and that is the Lord. He's completely separated from sin. Elsewhere, he's called the Holy One of Israel. That's how they view him, as the Holy One of Israel, because he is that way. We are filled with, you know, we live in a world filled with evil, right? You see it on every hand, evildoers all over the place. There's no human being alive who's not staying with sin. Every one of us is. That's why we need the Lord. Is why we need Christ as our Savior, because we have to come to him. And we're so used to seeing corruption in life. That we become cynical after a while about life, don't we? We see life because we see life for what it really is. We see people for what they really are. We know there's scam artists everywhere, right? We know that when we get in a business transaction, we've got to watch ourselves, lest the guy that we're in it with take us, right? Take us for something. we got to be careful. We know that thieves abound, don't we? I can tell you two stories in this room tonight, this church tonight. In the last two weeks, I've heard about that. Thieves abound, and so we've got to keep everything under lock and key. And more than you think, you've got to keep under lock and key. Because it's everywhere. And so, sin is all over the place, and yet there is someone we can go to who is without sin. Only one, and that's the Lord. There's no corruption in the Lord. There's no darkness in Him. There's no evil in Him. He's holy, right? And Because He is holy, His intentions towards His people are holy. The Lord means to do His people good, not evil. There's no one holy like the Lord so he's incomparable because he's holy perfectly so and then the and the next line she says indeed there is no one besides you you know david david says much the same later on in second samuel chapter twenty two verse thirty two he says for who is god besides the lord who is god besides the lord no one is you take all the gods of the all the religions of the world combine their attributes together and you will never have the equivalent of the lord it's impossible in fact They're all worthless idols, the work of men's hands, or maybe we can say the product of people's imagination. Although I do believe that demons influence false religions, and they're very real. I know that because Satan wants to spread all the falsehood he can, right? And so he's got all these religions out there confusing people constantly. But what demon can compare to God? What Satan in hell cannot compare to God or on earth or anywhere else, he can't compare to God. He's a subject to God. And then thirdly, she says, nor is there any rock like our God. There's no rock like our God. God's often called a rock, <clears throat> referred to as a rock in the Old Testament. Um, a rock symbolizes strength. It symbolizes security, protection, those kind of things. And that's how God is for his people. Uh, David testifies to that in Psalm 18, 1 and 2. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, he says it again, whom I take refuge. And that's not only in the Old Testament, there's a New Testament parallel because what's Christ called in the New Testament? He's called the rock, right? First Peter 2, he's called the stone. And so to to God's people, he is the rock of ages, isn't he? And we can come to him for security, for strength. So by these three parallel statements, verse 2, Hannah gives praise to the incomparable God. But thirdly, Hannah speaks of the Lord's knowledge in verse 3, the Lord's knowledge. It says there, Boast no more. She says, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. And with him, actions are weighed. Now, in the context of this prayer, the one boasting, the one displaying arrogance was Penina, as we go back to chapter 1 again. She's the one that was doing that. She was the rival of Hannah. She was the one being arrogant against Hannah, as we've said already. But Peninnah is not the only rival. She's used as, she is, but more or less an illustration for all who would try to rival the people of God and would try to open their mouth in pride and arrogance against the Lord, his people. And we all know what God thinks of pride, right? I mean, it's clear in the Bible that he hates pride. Uh, The scriptures say that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. But there's something else for the wicked to consider here, those who are boastful and proudful. And that is this, the Lord is a God of knowledge. She's saying to these who are boastful, don't you know the Lord is a God of knowledge? He knows everything you're thinking, everything you're doing. He knows all that. He knows every detail concerning every matter in the universe. He knows all that can be known. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows all things. Now, we know what we've learned in life. We have a certain amount of knowledge we accumulate in in life, all of us, right? In some degree or another. We know what we've experienced in life, what we've seen. And so our minds hold a certain amount of information. We know a certain amount of information, all of us here. But we don't know everything, far from it. And even what we do know is often tainted, right, in some way. Even what we do know is often inaccurate. Or we find out later, oh, that wasn't right. (laughs) or it's distorted in some way, or we did not even know it's distorted at the time. And we say something dogmatically, and we find out later, oh, well, I was wrong about that, or we won't admit it even, maybe. So that's the way it is. Scientists often think they've discovered some some fact, only to find out years later, oh, wait, that was wrong. We just told everybody as soon as we thought we even discovered something, we sent it out there on the airways that it's all correct, and here it is. And we know now, we should know, not to trust what those guys say right away, right? Uh, they can be proven wrong. The best of human minds are are limited, greatly limited. All of us are greatly hindered in our minds, uh, but the Lord knows everything. He doesn't have to study to learn anything. He knows everything intuitively. Uh, That that, that includes a perfect knowledge of the human heart. The Lord knows every thought that I'm thinking right now. He knows uh, what I I think before I think it. He knows what I'm going to think. He knows what I'm going to say next. He knows what I'm going to do next. He knows everything. He even knows the motives of my heart. You ever think about that? The Lord knows the motives of your heart. So if you think if you think you're getting away with anything at all, you're not in front of the Lord. You're not. He knows all that. Genesis six five, just prior to the flood, it says, "Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The intent." of the thoughts of his heart was evil. Genesis 6-5. God knows the plans that you're forming in your heart right now. He knows the purposes you have in your heart for whatever you're planning on doing. He knows all that. He knows the motives of, of your hearts. You know, in Acts 5, you know Ananias and Sapphira, they were, you know, the church was bringing all their, they were selling their property and giving all their property to the Lord, to the disciples, so they could distribute it as every man had need to help the brethren out. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to get in on that, except they wanted to hold back a part of the price of their proceeds for themselves because they figured, hey, let's let's make this look good in front of the church. We'll sell our land, and we'll keep back a part of it, and we'll tell the apostles we gave all of it to the church because everybody else is doing that. We're going to look bad if we don't. So they do, they do that, but <clears throat> the Lord's not fooled. They didn't fool God, their plan. He even allowed Peter to understand what was going on there, and... And Peter says this to Ananias. He says, Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? You conceived this deed in your heart. You've not lied unto men. You've lied unto God. You don't think God knows this? Oh, What the thoughts of your hearts and the motives of your heart are? He knows that information. Ananias failed to understand, strangely enough, that the Lord understood the motives of his heart. He should have known that information. So Hannah, in her, in her prayer, she says, The Lord is the God of knowledge, and with him, actions are weighed. See, he weighs the actions. He he knows the motives of what we're going to do before we do it, right? I may fool everyone as to my my motives. I may fool all of you, but the Lord knows what my true motives are. He's perfectly perceptive, right? And that's why prideful people need to beware. That's why Hannah says, don't boast anymore. God's the God of knowledge. He knows everything. He weighs actions. He knows what's going on. He understands the motives. He knows what's going on in your hearts. Don't, you know, so that's why they need to beware, that's why she says this, it's a, it's a warning really. Later on, the Lord would tell Samuel as he's picking a king, uh, he would say to Samuel, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? looks at the heart, right? He looks at the heart. So Hannah rejoices in the Lord's salvation. She is amazed at the Lord's incomparability and she's comforted in the Lord's knowledge. And then, fourthly, she talks about the Lord's sovereignty. She praises the Lord's sovereignty. And that's, that's found in verses 4 to 8, actually. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive, he brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. <coughs> he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the, from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Hannah praises the Lord for his sovereignty. She gets it, doesn't she? She understands what Arminians all refuse to believe, that the Lord is sovereign over all things. That he's authoritative over all things. And just because people don't believe that, by the way, doesn't mean it's not true. Because the scriptures teach that, and that's just the way it is, whether they want to believe it or not. He exercises his prerogatives, as he will, because he's authoritative. And she details the authority of the Lord for us in his sovereignty in these verses. She gives us five contrasts. Some see six or seven, but I think they're... And that's okay, that's fine, whatever. I think it's a little bit of an overreach. I just boiled it down to five. Um... By the way, this section is often referred to, 4 to 8, as the reversal of human fortunes. The reversal of human fortunes. Now, why, why is, what does that mean? Well, take Job, for example. When Job, when we see Job at the beginning of the book of Job, here's a man who's wealthy, right? He's got an abundance of animals. He's got many possessions. He's, everything is great for him, large family. And then everything goes topsy-turvy, right? He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses the animals and the possessions and all that. But then, later on down the road, God reverses that again, right? And he returns to a state of blessing. That's an example of human fortunes being reversed, and that's what God does in this section. That's what he's talking about. Who's behind these reversal of human fortunes in life? God is, right? Hannah says the Lord is. Let's look at the five contrast here. First of all, the first contrast, the contrast between the strong and the weak, that's in verse 4, the strong and the weak, it says that the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. It's talking about the bows of the mighty, an army, or men that are attacking, or men that have weapons of war like the bow back in that day was a big deal, Uh, military might, and those kind of things. And a powerful army is no match for God. Uh, Military weapons cannot stand against God to face him. What are they going to attack him with that's going to succeed? They can't. He's perfectly capable of destroying military might. He shows that scripture many times in the scripture when he drowned the Egyptians at the Red Sea, right? An Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. When he wiped out 180, 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army, a powerful army, wiped them out, it says. He defeated the enemies of Israel before Joshua. So God is able to reverse the fortunes of the strong and make that totally the opposite of what it looked, appeared to be at first, what it was at first. But then he goes on to say the feeble, the weak, gird on strength. The word feeble actually means uh, people who are stumbling, people who are tottering. They're on the verge of falling down and falling over. Uh, they're stumbling and they're tottering. These people gird on strength, it says, and they become what they weren't, strong all of a sudden. It reminds me of Isaiah 40 again. Uh, where it says, even young men stumble badly, but those who wait upon the Lord gain new strength. So God can reverse the fortunes of the weak and make them strong. And then the second contrast, the contrast between the full and the hungry. Look at verse 5. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry, they stopped being hungry. They ceased to hunger. You know, we find that to be true in the life of the prodigal son, don't we? He had everything you could want. Father wealthy, had it all. But he thought he knew better than his father, and he in- insisted that he get his part of the inheritance, and he struck out on his own. Well, he found out what the real world was like, didn't he? He found out what it was like. He got, he became broke. He got hungry. I tell you what, when you get hungry, you do things you wouldn't normally do, right? Sorry, the hungry man's a desperate man, as my wife always says. I think she's referring to me. But so he went out and hired himself to... One of the citizens of the country, and guess what his job was? He wasn't a manager anywhere or CEO. He was feeding swine, okay? He fed the swine, and he was so hungry, he would have gladly have eaten what the pigs were eating. That's how it was for him. Dying with hunger, it says. But then he came to himself, and he went back to his father, and he ceased to to hunger. Why? Because God can reverse the fortunes of people who are full or hungry. Either way, he can do that. And turn it all around there's a third contrast in verse 5 again the contrast between the barren and the fertile it says at the end of verse 5 even the barren gives birth to seven but she who has many children languishes the barren in the context here had been Hannah right she didn't have any children now does that mean she got she has gonna have seven children eventually actually no she's got one child right now and then in verse 21 she's gonna get five more She's going to have a total of six children, not seven. But seven is used elsewhere in Scripture, uh, talking about seven sons. It's used in Ruth chapter 4. It's used in Jeremiah chapter 15. Seven sons was considered to be an ideal family, a complete family, a perfect family. That's just used as a not a literal number, but it's representing an ideal family. The point of this in this verse is this. The Lord blesses the barren, even while the mother of many children languishes. What does that mean? That word, language, is referring to a state of exhaustion, a state of weakness. Not because she's got a bunch of children. She's exhausted. But the woman with many children was probably one who was boasting about her children, and God reverses her fortune. It makes her exhausted and weak, and she's growing faint because God reversed her fortune. There's a fourth contrast in verse 6. It's the contrast between being dead and being alive. It says the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. You know, the Lord has absolute authority over the entire course of your life. He does, and the entire course of my life. Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Lord says, It is I, listen to this, the Lord says, It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. The Lord's the one that does that. Now, Sheol is the realm of the dead. He's talking about people who are dead in in this particular verse. And the Lord has power to bring someone to the place of the dead, to put to put that person to death, quite honestly. And he also has the power to restore the health of one who is uh, bark, who is knocking at death's door. He's got the power to restore the health of that person. So he's authoritative over life and over death because he can reverse the fortunes either way. The, the, uh, the next contrast is the contrast between the poor and the rich. That's, that's in verses 7 and 8. Lord makes poor, he makes rich, he brings low, he exalts, raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and to inherit a seat of honor. The Lord even has control over our economic situation, over your economic situation. Now, it could be that we've violated financial biblical principles, and that's why we're in the shape we're in. could be that we're not giving to the Lord, we don't care about giving to the Lord, it could be that we've got ourselves into a mess with debt because of our own doing. And so the Lord is teaching us a lesson. Okay, I'll let you sit there for a while and stew and see how it is. You mess this thing up because you didn't obey my word. That could be the case. Even then, he's teaching us a painful economic lesson because he's, reversed, he's, he's allowing the fortunes to be reversed so we can learn. But remember who it is that gives you what you have. Always remember this. God is, an, is the one who gives you what you have. It's not that you that got, Deuteronomy chapter 8, we are warned not to say this. Don't ever say this. My power and the strength of my hand made me wealthy. I did it. I went and got my degree. I got this great job because I heard a guy say at uh, Targo one time, he says, who's got this all planned out? Who's the smart guy I am? I plan my life out and I know what I'm doing. I thought to myself, are you serious? You're going to actually say that? Don't ever say that. We remember that it is God who gives us the power to get wealth. It says in that chapter, of Deuteronomy eight. God is the one who allows you to get what you have. First Samuel 2.8, Here in the in the, in the, ver- in the ch- chapter we're looking at says this. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. The ash heap is the town dump back then. The dung hill, place where beggars, a bad place, nasty place, place where beggars slept. A place where, a place where beggars begged. God can take those people in that situation and reverse the whole thing. And allow them, it says in verse 8, to sit in the presence of nobility, to make them sit with nobles. You see what he can do? He can reverse fortunes. Now, what are these five contrasts teaching us that Hannah eloquently lays out in her prayer here? They're teaching us that the Lord is sovereign over every area of our life. He's authoritative. We don't control our destiny. We think we control our destiny. We're the master of our destiny, all that. No, we're not. God controls our destiny. Now, we are responsible for our actions. Never forget that. We're responsible to live wisely and to make wise decisions in life. There's always a response. How many times have we said in this church, Mike said it often, always the responsibility of man alongside the sovereignty of God. They work together, right? That's how what the scriptures teach. It's neither. It's, it, it's not one to the exclusion of the other. Both are true. Never forget that. We play our role in life. We do it with all our might because God expects us to, but then ultimately God is sovereign over all things. That's what the scriptures say. Just leave those two lying in tension together. Leave it like that. So Hannah concludes this section in verse 8 by saying, the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. In other words, hey, the Lord created the world. He upholds the world. He governs the world. Hannah has learned that the Lord is sovereign in her life. And then Hannah's next is thankful for the Lord's protection in verse 9. The Lord's protection. She says in verse 9, He keeps the feet of His godly ones. The Lord keeps the feet of His godly ones. Godly ones are the people of God. They're, you could translate the word saints or holy ones as well. They are His people. Keeping their feet means He guards over His, God's people, He watches over His people, he, he protects His people, basically. And I think it refers to all kinds of protection personally. I think there's many times in our life where the Lord's protected us from physical harm. I think many times that's happened that we may not even be aware of it. Now I know Revelation 6 speaks of those yet to be killed, right? Now God may, God will allow, God will allow there to be martyrs from some of His people. He will allow that, and He will allow His people to be persecuted in order to glorify Him. But I do believe He protects His people, and I think the emphasis here is He's protecting His people versus the people of the world whom are on, are on their own, basically, as far as that's concerned, because he contrasts that next in verse 9. And I think we're not only protected at different times in our life, we're protected for eternity in, in the area of salvation. First Peter one 5 we we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he had this incredible blessing to the people of God, the Lord's protection. And then 6, she makes a reference to the Lord's judgment, Lord's judgment, the end of verse nine. Uh, unlike the wicked, unlike the, the feet of the godly ones, but the wicked, contrast to the, the godly ones, the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For none by might shall for not by might shall a man prevail. <coughs> those who contend with the Lord shall be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. That's what it says there in those verses. The wicked, when they die, they're engulfed in darkness, it says in verse nine. The wicked ones are silenced in darkness. They can exert all the strength and might they want to, but it, but they're going to not prevail because it says in verse nine, not by might shall a man prevail. It doesn't matter what they do. You know, this the wicked can terrorize people all they want, like this guy at USF did this week, terrorizing people in the apartments over there, threatening people, raping people, trying to kill people, shooting at people. Uh, he did all that stuff, but eventually the Lord's going to bring people like that to justice, right? like he did that guy. He's going to judge people, it says. But not only are the wicked contending against God's people, they're contending against the Lord himself, it says in this verse. Those who can contend with the Lord will be shattered. They're contending against God, ultimately, and they're going to be shattered, it says. The Lord's going to thunder against them in the heavens. That same word is used in chapter 1, verse 6, by the way, the word thunder which tells us there that Penina irritated Hannah. Irritated is the word thunder. That's where it's translated from. It's the same word uh, translated thunder here. The wicked may thunder out against the godly ones, but the Lord's going to thunder out against the wicked is what he's saying here. And I tell you what, I I don't want to be at the receiving end of God's thundering out against people, right? And then it says he's going to judge the ends of the earth and all the wicked will be brought to justice ultimately. And then finally, Hannah's prayer prophesies of the Lord's anointed the Lord's anointed at the end of verse 10. He'll give strength to his king. He'll exalt the horn of his anointed. The idea of a king was nothing new in Israel. De- Deuteronomy 17 talked about future kings. Hannah here is probably prophesying of a future king. It's the first use of the word anointed, by the way. And what's interesting here is unknown to Samuel, and unknown, unknown, unknown to Hannah, rather, is that her son Samuel would be the one that would anoint the first two kings of Israel he'd be the one to do that and the lord will give strength to his king strength to david in particular and he would exalt his horn by the way this idea of exalting the horn is finishes the prayer as well as begins it so you have that you have kind of two bookends on the uh, either side of that and god's going to enable his earthly king to rule and he's going to enable ultimately who came out of the, uh, of the line of david the messiah did right christ which means anointed one and so that's why luke 132 says Christ will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The Lord's anointed. So this is a great prayer of Hannah. This is a God-centered prayer, isn't it? This is how we should pray. I mean, why don't we, like Hannah, rejoice in the Lord's salvation, right? We should rejoice in his salvation. Shouldn't we stand in awe of the lord's incomparability shouldn't we think that way in our prayers aren't we both comforted and convicted by the lord's knowledge we're comforted because we know he knows all things we're convicted because he knows all things right about us so we're both do we humble ourselves before the lord's sovereignty and realize he's in charge he's in control i'm here to do his bidding aren't we thankful for the lord's protection in our life we should be i was thankful this week when that guy was running around doing all that crazy stuff shouldn't we be shaken out of our lethargy when we think of the lord's judgment and how he's going to judge the wicked and how we need to reach out to the wicked right with the gospel and don't we want to exalt the lord's anointing? and that is christ right exalting christ ultimately so i think we need to reevaluate how we pray and we can learn to to pray from this prayer our prayer should be god exalting and christ exalting and I know we're over time. There's one more thing I wanted to say. Seems as if another woman in the Bible was inspired by the prayer of Hannah. And it seems to me that she understood this prayer. Turn it with me to Luke chapter one. We'll close with this. Luke chapter one. And this is Mary. Mary, obviously one who we'll see from what we read here in her prayer, that of praise, that she is one who knew the Scripture. She is one that understood. The scriptures in her prayer reflects the fact that she did understand scripture and she and she certainly must have known about Hannah's prayer because when you read this, you're going to see similarities, great similarities between her prayer and Hannah's prayer. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, after the birth of Christ is foretold and so on, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. Sound like Hannah so far? My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She's rejoicing too, like Hannah did. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel's servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. And you see the similarities between the two prayers. The Lord used both women to bear sons. Hannah bore Samuel the prophet, prophet of Israel, and Mary bore Jesus the Savior of the world, right? Both of them were used by God. What's the takeaway from all this as we close out? Well, both women humbled themselves before the Lord, both women gave praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, and I think that, and both women wanted to glorify the Lord, and I think that if we study their prayers, that will help us to learn to pray as we ought to. Don't forget that the ultimate goal is not even answered prayer, but rather that the Lord is glorified and that he's honored. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight, again, for the examples we have in prayer, uh, we're, we pray that our prayers would, would also be God-exalting. Uh, we pray that our lives would be God-exalting as well and that this church would exalt you in all that we do. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.